previously on Beta. All right, now we're moving on to the Nick and Nora. So far, we're doing fine. Hadn't got caught. Don't think, boy. Man, do you know how fast you were going? Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta. Today, musician and writer Warren Zanes joins us to discuss his latest book, Deliver Me From Nowhere, the making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. And when the singer gets into a kind of talking style, it just, it pulls the listener like 12 feet closer. Also, Southern noir crime fiction novelist S.A. Cosby returns to talk about his latest book, All the Sinners Bleed. I firmly believe that crime fiction is the best prism through which we examine our, our human existence, existentialism, our, our desires, our wants, our needs. But first... We're delighted to announce the return of Eddie Muller, host of TCM's Noir Alley. The Czar of Noir is one of the world's leading authorities on film noir. He's also a licensed bartender. It's true, Eddie is a graduate of Golden Gate Bartending School in his home of San Francisco. Eddie has combined his love of noir with his love of cocktails. The result is the beautiful book, Eddie Muller's Noir Bar cocktails inspired by the world of film noir. From the Maltese Falcon to Sunset Boulevard, Eddie's got cocktail creation pairings for over 50 noir classics. Plus, Noir Bar is loaded with plenty of fun facts about each movie that even a teetotaler can enjoy it. And that's the way Eddie prefers it. In fact, he told TCM that his approach to discussing film was always more barroom than classroom. I find that you know, in, in my career as a, whatever you want to call it, a cinephile or whatever, I have also adopted the credo, it is better to be accessible than definitive. Because in my, um, in my education, my cinematic education, I certainly ran into a lot of people who, who wanted to tell you that they knew exactly what was right and wrong with every movie ever made. And everything was over-intellectualized. And so I felt, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the, the very knowledgeable enthusiast. Because mm-hmm. I, I see my job as, as getting people to watch and enjoy these movies and perhaps providing a little extra context to enrich the experience. But my goal is not to convince them of how much I know about this stuff or, or that there's a right or wrong way to look at or enjoy films. Yeah, and that's what you do. And I think that's a big part, I would say, maybe even the unique selling proposition that you're USP. (laughs) There you go. Potentially, yeah. You have created or paired cocktails for 50 noir films in Noir Bar, but I have to ask, what film makes you crave a cocktail more than any other? Oh, well, that that isn't a noir film. That would be The Thin Man. Mm. (laughs) All of the Thin Man movies, even the Thin Man novel, Hammett's original novel. I mean, reading that book in one sitting, you can sort of get a contact high because uh, (laughs) Nick Charles drinks so much. Say, how many drinks have you had? This will make six martinis. All right. Will you bring me five more martinis? Leo, line them right up here. Yes, ma'am. Yes, it's a that's a thirsty movie. (laughs) all of them in fact all the thin man movies yeah one thing i love about this book is that not only do we learn a drink from your favorite noir film but we learn some trivia as well why did you want to include trivia 
you know, that, that, to me, that's a great bartender. I mean, making the drink is one thing, but being able to tell you a funny story about the drink or where the drink comes from or where they first discovered the drink, that's mm-hmm. all, that's equally important, you know? So I felt, I, I also wanted to write a book that if you don't drink, it's still worth having the book and reading the book, e- even if you're not going to make the cocktails. That, that mm-hmm. was an important part of the approach for me because, you know, I've met some people I, in, in going out and doing my film festivals and things who are clearly not drinkers. And I've even, you know, been cautioned a couple of times about my, uh, my love of cocktail culture. We're concerned for you, Eddie. And it's like, no, you don't, don't need to be. I've got a handle on this. Don't worry. But I just wanted to make sure that everybody could enjoy it. Not you didn't have to be a big drinker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was very kind of you to do that. Yeah, and it's a beautiful book. All you got like so many, the licensing for so many stills and and movie posters. It's a beautiful book. Well, most of those come from my personal collection. There you go. Let's get into some films, shall we? We here at Beta love Robert Mitchum. It may be due to the apocryphal quote attributed to to him that concerns silk and flatulence, but I digress. Roger (laughs) Ebert, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? (laughs) Yes. Yes, of course. Okay. And that's probably as far as we should go with that. Um, Roger Ebert called Mitchum the soul of noir. What is your favorite Mitchum film cocktail combo? Oh, gosh. There's several of these. I have uh, The Angel Face is an original... uh, uh, it was originally created during Prohibition at the Detroit Athletic Club. And of course, Mitchum in 1953 made a great picture with Gene Simmons called Angel Face. Um, and so I adopt that cocktail as the one for that film. You know, arguably his film Out of the Past is like mm. the um, the ultimate noir experience. And so for that one, I paired it with a Paloma, which is my preference over a margarita for a like a classic... Uh, Mexican quencher. Near the plaza was a little cafe called La Mar Azul, next to a movie house. I sat there in the afternoons and drank beer. I used to sit there half asleep with the beer and the darkness. Only that music from the movie next door kept jarring me awake. And it's very simple, and I don't think Mitchum would drink it, but I think Jay Greer probably would. <laughs> yeah. It has grapefruit soda, right? And I, I just right. don't see Mitchum being a guy who would need grapefruit soda in his tequila. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that. I think you're right about that. I don't think he would need that in his, in his soda, yeah. When we talk about noir, we have to talk about Bogey and Bacall. Your entry for their 1946 Raymond Chandler adaptation of The Big Sleep may surprise some readers. First, the drink you pair with this film is not the brandy drink that is so prominent in the film. And the second subversion is where this film ranks in your all-time noir films list. Have you been hitting the sauce extra hard, Eddie? <laughs> well, I know. I have I have different opinions about The Big Sleep than some people. Some people think it's like the ultimate noir film. But I just think at heart it's kind of a Howard Hawks comedy, really. Brandy Norris. How do you like your brandy, sir? In a glass. Yeah. I used to like mine with champagne. Champagne cold as Valley Forge and with about three ponies of brandy under it. Oh, come, come, man. Pour a decent one. Hmm? I like to see people drink. I definitely wanted to include it, not just for Bogey and Bacall, but because of Raymond Chandler and how important he is to the genre. Because I I like my noir on the page as well as the screen. And so I'm a big fan of the writers like Chandler and Hammett and James M. Cain, all of whom are represented in this book. 
but the big sleep i chose to pair it with a gimlet which chandler fans know is the drink that he sort of immortalized in a later novel the long goodbye uh, where he mentions it, I think, 23 times or something in the book. So I included it with The Big Sleep, but that was really a nod to Chandler himself because I was going to use the champagne cocktail that figures in the in the Big Sleep for another character later in the book. That I left that to Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard. That seemed more fitting that she would have the champagne cocktail. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. Good, Good move on your part. Our showrunner, Adam Friedrich's favorite noir, is John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle. I think it has to do with the fact that Adam is a gambler who doesn't want anyone trying to bone him, just like Sterling <laughs> Hayden's Dix Handley. Don't bone me! <laughs> you nicknamed the drink for this film The Left Hand. Can you tell us about The Left Hand? Sure. Well, The Left Hand is not a creation of my own, and that is a cocktail that I believe a, a mixologist, Sam Ross, created in the early 2000s. I don't think he had any idea about the asphalt jungle when he did it. He just came up with the name, the left hand, but and it's sort of a derivation of a Manhattan uh, with some interesting alternative ingredients. And I chose that. That was an obvious one for me because the asphalt jungle contains one of the great lines in noir when Louis Calhoun, who's a like shyster lawyer, who's fencing the stolen jewels, his wife, his wife uh, claims he hangs out with the lower class of people in his work. And he says, oh, my dear. Nothing so different about them. After all, crime is only a left-handed form of human endeavor. And I thought, now that's perfect for it. So we're going we're gonna to pair the left hand with the asphalt jungle. It's a very good cocktail. That's actually what's on the cover of the book. Ah, yes. It's yes, a left beautiful. hand. Plus, I'm left-handed, so it should be the perfect fit for me. I'll have to try that. <laughs> then you'll graduate up to being a two-fisted drinker. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's not get carried away. But yeah, if we given enough time, that could probably happen, yeah. Sadly, my favorite noir isn't listed in Noir Bar, so I'm wondering if you can make up a drink for me on the spot. Say I walked into Golden Gate Bartending School in the 70s and told you I loved Double Indemnity. What would you whip <laughs> up for me? And keep in mind that your teacher, Mac, is probably watching. Well, I know I think Stanwick in that movie it's bourbon with just a splash of water. I think that I think that's what she orders, but that isn't quite sophisticated enough. You gotta have some of that pink wine to go with it. Kind that bubbles. All I got is bourbon. Bourbon is fine water. And I know there's also another great line in Double Indemnity where uh, Barton Keyes, played by Edward G. Robinson, is complaining about the fictional girlfriend that uh, Walter Neff has and says, you know, that Margie, I don't like her. She sounds like she drinks from the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty great. Yeah. Uh, it would definitely, the double indemnity would definitely have a bourbon base. And then I'd probably pick something uh, tart to go along with it to represent Phyllis. So, you know, some some kind of vermouth that would go with it. And then you're just talking about a Manhattan and you can't have a Manhattan for a film that is so identifiable as a Southern California movie. Uh -huh. the, the, this is the way the thought process works, you know. So maybe you need something a little citrusy that represents the California setting of the film. Mm. Now we're looking at a, something a little more like a whiskey sour because certainly there's a sour taste left from that end of that film so um yeah probably a 
I'd make you a whiskey sour of some sort and garnish it with something particularly Californian. Nice, nice. I wish I could have one of those right now. One of the final films of the noir era was 1959's Odds Against Tomorrow. It was produced and stars civil rights icon Harry Belafonte. What cocktail did you create to honor this film about a black jazz great and a racist white tough who need to pair up for the film's heist? Well, I created a drink because I love that movie. That is one mm. of my favorite movies of all time. Whiskey? I don't mind. Straight or with water? With water. I got ice. You want ice? No, just, just water. The whole idea of making cocktails is putting together ingredients that you might be surprised can work in balance. And of course, that entire film is about how these cohorts uh, cannot work in balance and that their racial issues sink them in the end. So I wanted to make a cocktail that sort of went against that grain. So I, I uh, created what I call a Johnny and Earl, which are the names of the two characters. And uh, the Johnny is uh, Jamaican black rum, representing Harry Belafonte's Jamaican roots, and uh, Southern Comfort for the Earl Slater character that Robert Ryan plays. And then it needed a little something extra allspice dram to kind of smooth things out. And uh, it turned out pretty good. I've had a few of those since, since finishing the book. Now, you put a lot of thought and effort into like into all these recipes. I can tell just by listening to you. So did, did it take a lot of time, probably more time than we'd expect, or did stuff come to you just like pop into your brain? It's truly kind of a, a outgrowth of the whole pandemic. You know, cocktail hour became very important for people during the pandemic. And so I sort of started doing this as well. I mean, I've always done it my whole life. I've been a bartender. I have a cocktail lounge, a separate cocktail lounge that I built in my old 1912 garage in back of my house. So this is something I do all the time. Hmm. But the idea of putting putting it all together in book form really did grow out of, of COVID and just the fun of being able to have time to experiment with things. And I got to say, when you do a cocktail book, there's a huge advantage in that you get to write all that booze off your taxes as research. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was pretty useful as well. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised to discover that you included Louis Buñuel in your book. Why? Because uh, I read his memoir, and in it, he devotes a lot of time to talking about his preferred way to make a martini. And it's funny that I, I read Buñuel's autobiography, and that's my main takeaway from the book. <laughs> uh, I, I, fantastic filmmaker. I love his work. So what is so special about Buñuel's martini recipe? What's different oh, it, about it? It, it calls for very, very dry ice, right, right out of the freezer. No, it hasn't set out for any time at all. So uh, in addition to being very cold, it's very uh, sticky in a way. And you, uh, you put the vermouth in over the ice and just give it a quick swirl around so that the vermouth coats the ice. And then you pour the vermouth out. And then you add your gin and stir it. And, uh, you know, I'm a twist guy, not an olive guy, uh, whichever way mm -hmm. you prefer. But it, it really imparts just the right amount of vermouth in the drink. And I, I approve of that heartily. So I, I kind of included that. Although the martini is not for a Bunuel film, it's for the sweet smell of success, or mm -hmm. just sweet smell of success, which is, uh, you know, if you've seen that, you know that that's like my idea of heaven is J.J. Hunsaker's booth at 21, where he just, uh, you know, 
presides there and has platters of oysters delivered with his martinis and oh that looks pretty good to me yeah yeah me too yeah your Bunuel reference got me thinking that we should seriously consider making a film noir Bunuel mashup I'm thinking that we could combine the Lawrence Tierney noir, The Devil Thumbs a Ride, with the early Boonwell film, The Daughter of Deceit. Voila, we've got The Devil's Daughter, Thumbs a Ride. What do you think? <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's scary, though. You're, you know, you feed that into artificial intelligence and you'll probably have that movie in a, in a day, you know? Yeah, I got to try that. I, darn, I should have tried that. See, <laughs> see I'm, not, I'm not on top of things the way you are, Eddie. No, that all that scares me. I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah, okay. Then it's just as well that I didn't. I haven't done that yet. And that's probably good cautionary advice from you that I shouldn't do it. Eddie Muller, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on Noir Bar. I am looking forward to being a regular at the brick and mortar locations that will soon spring up across the country. And please remember to drink Wisconsinably. <laughs> thank you. Eddie Muller is the host of TCM's Noir Alley and the author of Eddie Muller's Noir Bar, cocktails inspired by the world of film noir. Find out more about Eddie and his book at wpr.org beta. These are songs are like short stories. Flannery O'Connor was one of his big influences. Coming up, musician and writer Warren Zanes talks about the Bruce Springsteen album that no one ever saw coming. Not even the boss. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Oh, yeah, I'm drinking again. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Warren Zanes was a member of the 1980s band, the Del Fuegos, and has shared the stage with Bruce Springsteen. Warren is also the New York Times best-selling author of a biography of the late Tom Petty. So who would be more qualified than Warren to write the story of Bruce Springsteen's most surprising album, and one that could be considered the boss's most important record ever? No, I can't think of anyone else either. Warren's book is Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. Warren writes beautifully about this 1982 album. It features 10 dark story songs that Bruce recorded by himself, with no plans to release the songs as an album. Warren talked to Bruce himself and many other musicians, including Roseanne Cash and former Beta guest Stephen Van Zandt. Beta's resident musicologist, Steve Gotcher, talked with Warren Zanes about the album that Bruce considers to be his best. Why would an artist who, after making his fifth album, which went to number one and contained his first top 10 single, make a record like Nebraska, which couldn't even be played on FM radio alongside the other rock hits of the day. New Jersey Turnpike Riding on a wet night the refineries glow Out where the great black rivers flow License registration I ain't got none But I got a clear conscience About the things that I this was 
such a dramatic, from a marketplace perspective, such a dramatic misstep. Why would someone do it? That was the question that really kind of propelled me. So how is it that Nebraska came to be recorded in the bedroom of a rented home in Colts Neck, New Jersey, with just Bruce and his guitar and a few other acoustic instruments? Yeah, well, the really important thing to you know, acknowledge up front is that this is the only official release of Bruce Springsteen's that when he recorded it, he didn't know he was recording an official release. So he thought he was just making demos. And he was recording in his bedroom to a TAC-144 recorder, which is a consumer model, which uses cassette tapes that you could have gotten at CVS at the time. And he was doing that because he realized as he came into his 30s that he was spending all his money on recording studios. So he buys this recorder thinking he's making demos and thinking he's just saving a little money, doing it in his bedroom rather than going to do his thinking and his experimentation and exploration in a commercial recording studio. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Put your makeup on, fix your hair pretty, and make me tonight in Atlantic City. Him thinking that he was just making demos allowed him the freedom to do whatever the heck he wanted to do. And then when he recorded this record and uh, listened back to it, it became something else to him. What, what, what was that? What he was hearing after the fact was, as you say, this the sound of an artist deep in his freedom of expression. Hmm. And he went into to re-record the stuff and... In his words, because these are very, very, these are these are songs are like short stories. Flannery O'Connor was one of his big influences. But his way of describing what happened when he went in to re-record was he said, I lost my characters. Right. So no characters, no story. No stories, no Nebraska. There was a film from 1973 called Badlands that was directed by Terrence Malick and starring uh, Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. And that had an influence on at least one of the songs, but maybe others on Nebraska. What what happened there? He was um, by himself in this rental house where he recorded Nebraska. And, you know, he was just up late by himself. And Terrence Malick's Badlands came on the television and it's a film about Charles Starkweather and the Starkweather killings of 1958 when Charles Starkweather and his accomplice Carolyn Fugate killed 11 people. That's what the film takes as its subject matter and Mm -hmm. Springsteen is watching this and in some kind of internal connection he sees something about his early childhood in there. Now, obviously, his early childhood was not about serial murderers, but there is something in the tone and the temperament and the desperation of these characters that he just made this connection that nobody else could have seen. Mm -hmm. 
and it it gave him a song, Nebraska, in which he takes the first person point of view as if he is Charles Starkweather. I saw her standing on her front lawn, just a twirling her baton. Me and her went for rides and people But it becomes this door into an exploration of his early childhood, which was a time of a lot of conflict for him that maybe nobody else would have seen. But that's the wild thing to me is that he's looking at a film about a serial murderer and he's saying, this reminds me of when I lived with my grandparents. We talk to a lot of artists who talk about honesty being the doorway into people relating to them when they do their comedy routine on stage, write songs. And it seems like the honesty, the level of honesty that he got to on this record is what made it so relatable to so many people. He started with his first record using honesty uh, because I think, you know, he grew up listening to records. He, like so many listeners, how do we know? I don't know, but we do know when it feels like it's not honest. Yeah. And what do we go to songs for, you know, we go for a lot of emotional needs. You know, the popular song is a really interesting form, how we take it in, how we use it, but we're going for something that if the honesty is absent, we're not getting our needs met as listeners. So Springsteen knew this and he'd been practicing it well before Nebraska, but being that kind of honest artist when he then was going through this kind of personal crisis and making a record in the midst of it, it was brutally honest. Right, right. There were other things going on that influenced this record. American culture in the early 80s had some impact on uh, the creation of Nebraska. What were those things that influenced from the uh, cultural perspective? Yeah, well, when he was on the, the river tour, he was already saying some things about Reagan's America. Right. And, you know, Reagan's campaign was, you know, morning in America. And it was a very, you know, it was a full color America, a very white America, a very middle class America. It was a representation of life in this country that left a lot of people out. Mm -hmm. And the, the people that were left out of Reagan's image of this country the ones that Springsteen had already been writing about. And so it put him in a position of like, if that America is missing, it's my role as a songwriter to expose that place and those people. And he did it. Still at the end of every hard day, people find some and in doing so, he's going, you know, from the, that full, vibrant color of Reagan's, let's call it, propaganda, and into something with less color. Mm -hmm. Like the deeper you go into it, there's less color. This is a very black and white 
project aesthetically and spiritually. And the other thing that it was at odds with because of that was MTV's emergence, which was, however different from Reagan's America, it was also a full color thing. It was saturated pigment and artists throwing in big old shoulder pads. And Nebraska was so almost defiantly out of sync with that. Right. When I was you know, a teenager and it came out, I connected with the desperation of the characters in the songs, but I also connected with the defiance that I felt Springsteen was showing in turning against his moment. Yeah, and some have said that uh, because of that, it actually is a punk record. Would you agree with that? I, I agree 100%. That's how I received it. Now, Nebraska didn't sound like punk. It was, you know, it was really driven by acoustic guitar and had a style that people would associate with folk. But that defiance, that refusal to meet 1981 and 1982 in that saturated color, early MTV, Reagan's America world, that felt like more punk than so many of the records that declared themselves punk. Right. So we talked about this before, but I want to expand on it a little bit. Bruce tried to record these uh, songs in the studio with his band, but the process failed utterly. Why did that happen that way? He tried to make this a band record, but I think sometimes we have a songwriter who can do a number of things. And as he's coming into the breadth of his gifts, he's got to start making choices. And sometimes he chooses that solitary path. And when it's supposed to be the more solitary and you still try to put it with the band, the singer has to project up and over that band. It means they got to push to get on top of this sound. And the E Street Band is a big sound. Yeah. And I think some songs need the singer to pull back. If you pull back with a band, you're gonna get buried. So there were some very practical elements. And then once he was without a band, the singing could get closer to talking. And when the singer gets into a kind of talking style, it just, it pulls the listener like 12 feet closer. Uh. It creates this intimacy. It means the singer can get, you know, start to like, you hear the breath more uh -huh. and the effect is different. And I think clearly for these songs, Springsteen was going, that's how it's gotta be done. Daddy switched the same job from morning to Yeah, I walk on the same dirty streets where I was born. Up the block, I can hear my little sister in the front seat blowing that horn. The sounds echoing all down Michigan Avenue. Now, Mister, the day my number comes in, I ain't ever gonna ride no. After the release of Nebraska, Bruce took a road trip to his new home in the Hollywood Hills. But something happened along the way. What happened? He was driving from 
New Jersey to Los Angeles in a circuitous path with his friend Matt to move into the first home that he'd ever purchased for himself, which was in Los Angeles. And he has this depressive event. I think there's a connection between Nebraska and that breakdown. Mm -hmm. I think he went into something that just was destabilizing, ultimately productively destabilizing. He goes into therapy after that and he gets help. But he doesn't make that connection and that's what we did in the interview mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, it, and we didn't want to make it causal. I wrote these songs and had a breakdown. It's never that kind of simple. Right. But he did explore a time in his life that was deep down in there. There was traumatic content that hadn't been processed and that he started to process it in these songs he was writing. I heard the wind rustling through the trees and ghostly voices rose from the fields I ran with my heart pounding down that broken path With the devil snapping at my heels. How do you think Nebraska is going to be remembered in the history of Springsteen's recordings and the history of rock and roll? I think it's that message to songwriters and the, the people who make recordings that sometimes you you break it down to its most essential elements. Stop putting things on top of it. Stop trying to make it better. Release it before you feel comfortable with it. Hmm. And it might be the virtue that it most needs. Warren Zanes, thank you so much for talking to us today, and thanks for your fascinating book, Deliver Me From Nowhere. It's an amazing journey into Bruce Springsteen's creative process. Thank you so much. Warren Zanes is the author of Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. He talked with Steve Gotcha. Find out more about Warren and Nebraska at wpr.org slash beta. I'm not anti-religious by any stretch of the imagination, but I am anti-hypocrisy. I am anti-manipulation. And so for me, the idea of religion is not bound to any organized hierarchy. Coming up, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning crime fiction author, S.A. Cosby, joins us to talk about his novel, All the Sinners Bleed. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. S.A. Cosby is one of the most distinctive crime fiction writers working today. 
His second novel, Blacktop Wasteland, won numerous awards and rave reviews. His third novel, Razorblade Tears, was a New York Times bestseller and recommended on Barack Obama's summer reading list. Sean returns to the South for his novel, All the Sinners Bleed, and it could well be his finest work yet. Stephen King offered Sinners a rave review in the New York Times. The protagonist is Titus Crown. He's the first black sheriff in a small town in Virginia. After Cosby's Razorblade Tears was released in 2021, Sean wanted to address police violence in the black community. So he started working on a story called Black as Sackcloth. Originally, Black as Sackcloth, which became All the Sinners Bleed, was going to be a... Uh, examination of uh, police corruption, police violence, and brutality in America using a small town setting as a microcosm for that. But I learned rather quickly that I didn't have enough distance emotionally from that issue to really write about it effectively. I sort of switched gears, and that book morphed into uh, All the Sinners Bleed, which is a more I think, nuanced examination of small-town life in relation to religion and race and class. And I think overall it's a better book. But I also felt significant pressure that I put on myself from um, the incredible response to Razorblade Tears. Blacktop Wasteland came out, and that you know really got a great reaction from folks. But Razorblade Tears was a different animal. It really changed my life. And I really was stacking the bricks on myself to try to replicate a success. Eventually, after about six months, I uh, had a conversation with a fellow writer named Eric Pruitt, who gave me some really good advice. And he said to me, he said, you know, whatever you're working on doesn't have to be as good as Razorblade Tears. It just has to be good. And I think that sort of baseline uh, gave me a new uh, a way to appreciate what I was working on. And it really opened up the floodgates for me, and uh, I was able to really dig into the book and find the story I wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you realized when you were having this conversation that you realized that you hadn't written deeply about religion, and so you decided that religion was going to be a big, big part of uh, all the sinners bleed. Can you talk about that? How how you wanted to to go in deep into religion in this book? Yeah. So. I have paid sort of uh, sort of short shrift to religion in my earlier books. Most of my books are about outlaws. There are brief mentions of religion and brief mentions of uh, mortality and existentialism in my books. But this was the book where I really wanted to lean into it and discuss it. My mother was very religious growing up. I lost her a few years ago. And so this book was sort of a way for me to sort of reconcile my own tenuous agnostic feelings about religion while also acknowledging both the positive aspects of religion in a small southern town and the negative aspects you know religion can be a comfort and it can be a cudgel it can be used to bring people together and it can be used to manipulate people and tear them apart and i i wanted to sort of embrace and talk about all those aspects i'm not anti-religious by any stretch of the imagination but i am anti-hypocrisy i am anti manipulation and so for me the idea of religion is not bound to any organized hierarchy i think you can be a spiritual person without being a religious person i think you can be a spiritual person without believing in supernatural you know trees and nature and and a running river can be spiritual so i kind of want to explore that through 
Titus in his own struggle with religion in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm very sorry for the loss of your mother. Uh, yeah, you mentioned Titus. He's your protagonist, Sheriff Titus Crown. Can you tell us a bit about him? Yeah, he's an. Int- I think he's an interesting character, but I don't know if we would be friends because we have several different ideas about the way the world works. But having said that, I believe he is a strong, moral, upright person who has a strong moral code. He's not perfect, and he has his own flaws and faults, but he is someone who... When the darkness arises in his town, he doesn't avert his eyes. He stands in the gap between the light and the dark to protect his town, protect the people he loves. And I think, you know, that's all we can ask of heroes, of our protagonists, is they don't have to be perfect, but they have to stand up uh, when it's time for them to stand up. I really came to love Titus as a character. I, I admire his intelligence. I admire his determination. I understand his flaws and his faults. He's a character that I think resonated with me in a in a way differently than my other characters. You know, I'd love to have a beer with Bug from Blacktop Wasteland. I'd love to hang out and have a drink with Ike and Buddy Lee. But I would depend on Titus if I needed help. I think that's what kind of sets him apart from my other characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I can see why you would say that. Yeah, Titus is a great character. I I really found it very fascinating, and uh, I'm someone who I wish I could be more like in terms of bravery and and things like that. So, definitely, you you did a great job with that character. You you use a very powerful, inciting incident to kick off your story. Can you tell us about it? The incident that starts the book is there's a shooting at a local high school, and unlike shootings uh, that we're more unfortunately familiar with. This isn't a mass shooting. One person has killed a beloved teacher, and that teacher is killed by a former student. And then the former student is confronted by Titus's deputies and Titus. And as he tries to de-escalate the situation, unfortunately, that student is killed as well. And I use that because I know what I wanted to do, and I hope I achieved it. And what I wanted to do was to show how we have become desensitized to horrific event on top of horrific event. And so in the beginning of the book, the school shooting happens and that's, you know, takes up everybody's mind and everybody's concern. And then after the school shooting, Titus and his investigation discovers that the teacher and the student and a third person were involved in a, in a, in a series of terrible crimes. And fairly quickly, people move on to the serial murder and it's almost as if they forget about the school shooting and the children and what they're going to deal with and the PTS and the trauma and everything that's uh, around it. And that's done deliberately because I wanted to talk about and show how, unfortunately, as a country, we become so desensitized that we just move to the next tragedy. But characters like Titus don't forget about that school shooting. They don't forget about the horrible events. In fact, it weighs on him deeply throughout the rest of the book. And so um, it was sort of a, a narrative technique that I wanted to show how quickly we just move on, unfortunately. One of the most powerful aspects of your writing is the way you support people who are oppressed. In fact, you describe crime fiction as the gospel of the dispossessed. How so? I firmly believe that crime fiction is the best prism through which we examine our our human existence, existentialism, our, our desires, our wants, our needs. Because I think, for me, 
any book that shows people at their most desperate, shows people at their most vulnerable is a crime novel. You know, one of my favorite books of all time is A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley. And there's there's murder, there's violence, there's assault in that book. I mean, it's considered a literary classic, and it is, but ultimately it's also a crime novel. The Secret History by Donna Tartt, another one of my favorite books of all time, is a magnificent examination of privilege and class, but it's also has a crime at the heart of it. And so I think ever since, you know, Cain slew Abel, crime has driven our stories, crime has driven our narratives, and crime is the way that we view our human existence at its both at its worst and at its best. And for me, when I say it's the gospel of the dispossessed, I'm reminded of a Dennis Lahane quote that crime and noir is not stories of Icarus falling from the heavens. It's stories of people falling from the the curb into the gutter. And those are the stories that I want to tell. Those are the stories that I think resonate the most. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Stephen King gave All the Sinners Bleed a great review in the New York Times. And he said, this is a book filled with carefully controlled anger. How challenging was it for you to control your anger while you were writing your novel? Or first of all, I should ask, were you angry while you were writing the novel? I was. And I think I used Titus as the avatar for that rage. And I think what I was angry most about is just the inequality and unfairness of society. You know, I grew up in a small town and I know how wonderful that can be and I know how claustrophobic that can be. And so I know how you can be judged by your name, not by your individual characteristics. Um, And also I know how unfair the law can be. You know, one of Titus's more naive qualities is he really wants to fix things in the police department. He ran on the basis of trying to make sure that the police department treated everyone more equitable. He has this desire, this belief that if he just treats everyone equal under the law, that he can mete out justice um, with equanimity. And I believe that's very difficult because a lot of times justice system in America is inherently unequal. And so it made me really examine my own anger with that, but also what are the answers to that problem? How do we fix it? I I don't know if I answered that question in the book, but I know Titus is definitely trying to ask the questions. And through him, I was able to sort of use that rage and that anger and that frustration to drive the narrative. And there are moments where Titus, you can see it just bubbling under the surface, how angry he is, how frustrated he is, and also how alone he is, because he's this He's not Gary Cooper in High Noon, but he definitely has some of those aspects where he's the one man standing against this torrent, this tidal wave of darkness. And so he was really a great way for me to express some of my own frustrations. Mm. How did reading a, this very positive review from Stephen King hit you? <laughs> it was it was wonderful. It was, you know, I was at a book conference in New York when the um, review came out. You know, I turned I had turned my phone off um, when I was on a panel, and when the panel was ended, I turned my phone back on, and I was looking. I was actually just scrolling through my phone trying to find a place for lunch, and the review popped up. And you know, I was very it moved me. I'm not ashamed to say I cried a little bit because, you know, not only is it is a review from one of the great writers, great American writers of all time, which I don't think he gets enough credit for that. But it's also someone I have mm-hmm. a very deep personal connection to as a reader. My aunt, when I was a little kid, 
would give me all her Stephen King novels when she was done reading them. So she'd hand me these dog-eared paperbacks. And I remember those great paperback covers from the 70s and 80s that she would give me. And my mother was a big Stephen King fan. There's this sort of shared consciousness when you're a Stephen King fan. And that he writes literary work for the masses, I think. Mm, For a poor young black kid from the rural South, I understood you know, Maine. I understood Castle Rock. You know, I knew Banger and and I understood Salem's Lot. And I I knew guys like, you know, Ben Mears. And and so to see that writer that I had such a connection with as a child, as a young man, as an adult, not only read my book and know who I am, but also really enjoy it and really give me such a positive response. It really moved me. It's something I'll never forget. Mm, that's great. Yeah. Well, what's next for your essay, Cosby? Yeah. So I have a couple projects coming out that I'm really excited about. One, I had the opportunity to write an eight-episode audio drama for Audible called "Broke Down Profits." It's a crime, as a crime story, as a as a road trip. I'm currently working on my next novel, tentatively titled "King of Ashes," which is about mm. three siblings. And their father, who own a crematory, and the youngest sibling runs afoul of some criminal types, and he is in debt. And so in order to sort of assuage this debt, the oldest sibling makes a deal with the criminals that they can use the crematory at their leisure to get rid of their enemies. He also finds that he enjoys being a criminal. And so that has ramifications for the entire family. And in the future, I have plans uh, to maybe return or revisit You know, it's funny. I I usually write standalones. I've always been known for standalones. I haven't written any series. But recently, talking to people about the reaction to Titus, I I don't know. We may see Titus again. We may see Titus again. He's he's really... Excellent. I don't know if he's done saying what he has to say. (laughs) No, I don't think he'll ever be done. Looking forward to that, the return of Titus Crown. Sean Cosby, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on All the Sinners Bleed. We're looking forward to reading King of Ashes and listening to Broke Down Prophets. Thank you so much for having me again. I really appreciate it. S.A. Cosby is the author of All the Sinners Bleed. Find out more at wpr.org beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests. Eddie Muller, Warren Zanes, and S.A. Cosby. What you're gleaning from these interviews is groundbreaking. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. Don't forget to offer a rating or to share with new alphas. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. Cocktail? Cocktail. I think I'll try one of those things. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. Are you packing, dear? Yes, darling. I'm just putting away this liquor. And thanks to you, our alphas. More Beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. I'm sorry we couldn't have a drink. Perhaps some other time. <laughs>